Donald Trump was arraigned in federal court in Miami on Tuesday. We'll give you an update on what's likely to happen in the trial of the century. Then helicopter parents are invading the workplace. What should employers do when mom and dad call up to ask to be involved? And finally, Gen Z is the most sex positive generation in history, yet they're having less sex. We'll try to unravel that contradiction. All of that and more on The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. Hello, everybody. I'm Robbie Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Ricky, I have in front of me this article from the National Review. Yes. It's 20 Rules for Dating by one Ricky Schlott. Now, AKA conservative Carrie Bradshaw. Thank you very much. Is that much. right? So yes. I, I hadn't realized that the National Review did this kind of social commentary. Uh, how did this article even come about? They had a special issue on men and boys. And naturally, I was the go to source men, for that. Noted boys men's and men. rights active, activist. As, yes, Ricky as the, the female men's rights activist that I am. Um, I, they reached out and they said, would you write an article about how to date in the modern age? And I said, sure, because that's really the blind leading the blind, but that's okay. You know, we're all, we're all figuring it out. We're all muddling through, but it's in the, um, special father's day edition, which is kind of funny. So I'll give that to my dad on Sunday. All right. So there's some interesting stuff in here that I need to ask you about. So you've got some, you've got a bunch of rules here. Um, ask dad or grandpa about rejection. Yeah. I mean, I think my generation is so afraid of rejection and we'd much rather like sit on our toilets and swipe with people and only talk to people who we've mutually like swiped on and Mm -hmm. people are afraid to go up in person and like they take rejection so personally, but you know, I, how we wouldn't be here if, if our prior generations didn't shoot their shot in person sometimes. So fuck up. Yeah. Yeah, I I agree. You know, when I was a kid, I used to have a job uh, selling candy door to door. And I feel like that kind of experience helps you a lot because then you just you hear no so often that -hmm. you just don't take it personally anymore. Um, Exactly. Pay. Okay, so you say you should pay on the first date always and call me old fashioned, but you should pay for the second and probably the third. So at what point does the guy need to stop paying for their date, if ever? Um, I think it gets appropriate to start splitting around. Like maybe four. Um, but I also don't think it doesn't have to be something lavish. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I think if there's most women, I, I whether or not they like to admit it, think that it's kind of nice to have a guy pay on the first couple dates. And, you know, no shame in that. I have a I have a friend who recently went on a date and uh he everything about this date he loved. Uh and he and he's gay, so he's another guy, and he didn't call the guy back, not because of anything that happened, just because they split the check. And I was just like, hmm. I don't or, know how that the, works. Or the guy in... paid. Or the guy paid. The other, uh, the guy, the, my friend had to pay. Um, and I'm like, that can't just be, it can't be that crazy. I mean, I, of course you should pay whenever it's expected. And obviously that's a little bit harder of a dynamic to figure out, but like, yeah, like just over who pays, man, like some people do take this stuff like rather seriously. Like what does it communicate if somebody, if you're a woman and the guy asks you to split the check in the first date? Like what does that say? I think chivalry is dead if that's what you're doing. I don't know. I I, mm. I would guess, I don't have the public polling data in front of me, but I would guess that the vast majority of women would not be a fan of that. And if they reach for the check to split, it's performative and it's bullshit. 
But yeah, this is what we call uh, alligator arms. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, enough dating advice. People can go check this this article out. Once again, it's 20 Rules for Dating in the National Review. Just a lot of good advice, a lot of sound advice there from your, from your decades of experience on the dating scene. All those decades. Let's, let's do a 180. We want to do a couple quick updates. I saw this article. We're not going to cover this as a segment, but I saw that um, Schellenberger, Matt Taibbi, and others have been tweeting about some new revelations from Wuhan. Like, what's yeah. going on here? So they have a multi-sourced uh, Substack article here that is on the public Substack, which Schellenberger and Taibbi are collaborating on, where they talk to multiple U.S. government officials. Their sources are protected, so... I, you know, you have to take that at face value, but they seem to feel comfortable that they've vetted them properly. And the sources all are very confident in saying that there were three scientists in November of 2019 who reportedly are the kind of patient zero people of COVID. Um, they all worked at the Wuhan Institute of Virology on gain of function research. And two of them actually co-authored um, a research paper on on SARS-like viruses in 2019. There's a 2017 Chinese media hit of them on TV um, to holding specimens without protective gear. And so, you know, this is another sign in the direction of potentially a lab leak and uh, potentially this is the result of gain of function research. And so I think a lot remains to be seen on, on who these sources are and whether or not we can uh, corroborate them more broadly, but interesting revelation. Yeah. It'll be, I, I tried to poke around to find other news outlets kind of dissecting the claims and we didn't see too much. Obviously the post covered it. Yeah. Um, there was like some Australian news company that covered it, but it's like interesting that there hasn't been a lot of engagement yet on that story, which it could go one of two ways, right? One is, uh, it's just another example of the traditional media not taking seriously this claim, or there's something we're missing about it, or maybe they just, just it takes a while people, to validate. You I also know? think people are just tired of adjudicating and going back and forth on this issue, which I understand. But that would be a huge thing, right? Like the it Wall Street Journal, for thing. example. Like if the Wall Street, like the Wall Street Journal, I, I trust on these types of things, right? You would think that if they if they really felt that there was uh, government sources saying that it was like we found patient zero, well, that the problem they would is, cover this, you know? I think the problem is that they, unless they independently speak to those government sources, they're not right. going to republish it. So, you right. know, for t potentially they come forward, they go to more media outlets, but this is where they put their foot in the door. Yeah, it is one of those interesting media moments when you're like, well, like because of the personalities wrapped up in some of this stuff, like people like kind of go to their corners and it becomes really hard for people to talk to each yeah. other. And also because of the nature of journalism, right? So like back in the day, like this, this wouldn't have been published, say in a sub stack, it would be published potentially in the New York times, assuming that the source is correct and all that. We have no reason yeah. to think it isn't. And then pretty quickly, the reporters at the wall street journal and the Washington post would catch up and then they'd all kind of corroborate the reporting over time. And they use some of the same sources because of this sort of fractured media environment, Sometimes these things just dangle out there for so mm -hmm. long and you're just kind of left wondering, well, okay, like if somebody like me who's like, ah, I don't really, like 50% of what Taibi publishes I really love and then 50% of it I have major questions with and then I'm like, I don't know which box to put this into because like mm -hmm. the journalists are like a little bit more out there than they used to be, like especially the sort of substack and disaggregated folks. So we'll keep an eye on this. It's 
obviously, if he's right, this is huge. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so it's, that's like why I wanted to talk about it on the front end. You know, one other quick update, Ricky, is the Epstein victims, because we just talked about Epstein. They just got a $290 million settlement from JP Morgan. This was just announced. And so um, just want to make sure our audience was updated on that. That is a huge, huge settlement. And it seems like it's just the beginning. Like there's a bunch of mm-hmm. cases winding their way through the courts right now. Yeah, the Virgin Islands is um, suing J.P. Morgan Chase as well, and then J.P. Morgan Chase is also suing a former executive of theirs that they claim is um, largely responsible for cover- covering up Epstein's actions within the company. So, yep, much more to to be seen on this front for sure. All right. Well, Ricky, did anything else happen this week? Hardly. Really slow news week. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, on on Friday afternoon, Trump's indictment was unsealed by the Justice Department following months of interviews of people that have worked with him and been in his uh, ether recently. And he has 37 counts of seven different charges, including willfully retaining national defense information, withholding classified records, making false statements to investigators and conspiracy to obstruct. Um, And content in some of the documents that he, according to this indictment, was in possession of at Mar-a-Lago include information about defense weapons capabilities, um, both here and abroad, uh, nuclear programs, which I'm working on saying not nuclear (laughs) after... Bill Maher ripped my head off for that. Um, Vulnerabilities to military attacks and plans for a a possible retaliation to an attack in Iran. Um, And included as well is the fact that he was talking to writers and publishers and staff members um, and even did a recorded interview for an upcoming book in which he pretty much says, like, isn't this cool secret stuff, man? (laughs) (laughs) So, um, of course, Trump is saying he's not guilty and this is a witch hunt. And... The left is is cheering it on, and so on we go in the in the Trump world. I, you know, I talked to Isaac from Tangle on Friday about this just as the indictment was released, and you know what we said at the time was this is the worst case scenario for Trump, and I think that has become all the more clear. Like even people who've traditionally defended him before are pretty pointed about this. So Bill Barr said, quote, it's a very detailed indictment. It's very, very damning. And he said this on Fox News, by the way. And he said, um, he noted that the Justice Department had acted, quote, in a very patient way in trying to obtain the documents. And they were met with, quote, very egregious obstruction. And I think the obstruction is where we should start. Because I think the obstruction is re- is going to be really hard for Trump to get out of because essentially what the Justice Department did that was really smart was they basically, they seemed like they were aware that you had all these other document issues that were happening in the public, Pence, mm-hmm. Biden, et cetera, right? And they were like, well, we have to make sure that whatever we charge Trump with is... Uh, wholly different than what we charge that we could charge Pence or, or Biden with, and th- there is a special counsel right now looking at Biden. Uh, and and essentially, what they did was they basically only uh, charged him for things that he did after they gave him multiple opportunities to return the documents. And mm-hmm. within this document, there are just multiple smoking guns where Trump admits to obstruction of justice and breaking the Espionage Act. Like, I think number yeah. one is you have a contemporaneous audio from the, his own lawyer talking about Trump asking him not to release these documents. 
that's very damning. And we could talk about how they even got that in the first place. I would say the most damaging thing, though, is a recording he did, that was taken by a reporter where Trump admits that he didn't have, that these were classified documents, that he didn't declassify them. So he admits to, like, he'd been, he and his supporters had been saying that he, maybe he has this inherent like declassification authority, yada, yada. So he's admitting that he doesn't have this authority. He's admitting that they're classified documents and he's sharing very sensitive information with people who don't have clearances nor any reason to know. And so you take those two things together and sort of the the pile of Espionage Act, Presidential Records Act, and then obstruction of justice charges. Mm -hmm. And also with the fact that there's actually more charges they could still bring, which we could talk about, that this is tough for him. This is going to be a tough case for Donald Trump. Well, one thing that I'm hearing is that one of his best um, defenses here is potentially uh, quibbling with the fact that some of the discovery includes things that he was under the impression would be protected by attorney-client privilege and communications that he had within like his his one-on-one talks with his attorneys, which I my understanding is that they as long as they can say that they believe he committed a crime, they're allowed to access that. But do you think yep. that he has any legal standing in pushing back against the fact that a lot of this is from privileged communication? Well, yeah. And, and what you're referring to is called the crime fraud exception. And essentially they're allowed to, um, the justice department and any prosecutor is allowed to obtain documents. If the communication with the attorney is done with the intention of committing or covering up a crime. And in this case, the audio is explicitly of Trump saying, what if we didn't give back the documents? Why don't we not give back the documents? And so that would be pretty squarely mm -hmm. uh, within the crime fraud exception. But the thing is like, even if they somehow like they ruled on that and, and, clawed back that communication. Trump's got other problems here. Like the audio recording of him with that reporter or the very fact that he still had these documents or, you know, the interviews with witnesses around Mar-a-Lago, which there are many, like his own staff members who appeared to be interviewed for this, who are saying, this is what Trump mm -hmm. told us. He told us to move it here. We were worried about this. He was showing it to this person. Like all of that will, will stay. And, mm -hmm. and none of that is under the crime fraud, or most of that is not under the crime fraud exception. So that is, you know, it's it's going to be a tough case for him. And I think the biggest, and, and I started to talk to Isaac about this, the, the two biggest things he has going for him, number one is this judge, Eileen Cannon, who's somebody he appointed towards the end of his term and who had already ruled in an early iteration of this case around the discovery. She appointed a special master to... Um, to look through these documents and what was like a head scratching decision that many people felt was uh, a, 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 an attempt to slow this trial down. Uh, the, mm -hmm. a, a, a court of appeals, three panel uh, a grouping of the court of appeals that included two Trump appointees very pointedly um, ruled against her and got rid of the special master and continued this case. And I think like, like I, I tend not to try to like accuse people of bias without a lot of evidence, but I would say this, she should recuse herself. Like, I, I think that based on with the preponderance of evidence, and this is the fact that this is like the most important trial probably in American political history, like even just the scent of bias should just be like, all right, let me wash my hands of this. But even if she doesn't like, so, so if she doesn't, 
the best thing he's got going for is he's got a potentially sympathetic judge who could slow this thing down and also rule on motions in his favor. Even if it wasn't a sympathetic judge, like these things take time. So it could be that the presidential election decides this. The second thing he's got going for him, Ricky, is it's a Miami jury, which is better than a Manhattan jury for him. Another thing that's notable and might be in his favor that the Wall Street Journal pointed out is that um, they said it's striking and legally notable that the indictment never mentions the Presidential Records Act um, and uh, might hinge on the Espionage Act more so. Um, And they believe that that will be part of Trump's defense. So, Ravi, what's the nuance there and, and how does the Presidential Records Act play in? Yeah, well, I think like the Espionage Act is just a stronger set of consequences, which is why I think this this includes Espionage Act uh, charges. Like, by and large, people who get convicted on Espionage Act charges go to jail for a very, very, very long time. And um, there's a lot of overlap between the two statutes. There is speculation, though. And and, and by the way, like, I disagree with the Wall Street Journal in this sense. Um the obstruction, it it on, on like in the end, none of this is going to matter if they peg him on obstruction, which it seems like they've got him dead to rights on, uh, because like it, it, he could Trump can prove, and this has happened many times uh, over the course of many cases, he could prove, which will be very unlikely, that he did not break the underlying law, but mm-hmm. if he obstructed justice on his way to that, then um, then it doesn't matter, right? This is a problem that he's going to have to deal with. I do think they have him dead to rights because they have him on audio recordings <laughs> disseminating this information and like you know tons of people around him. So Ricky, there is one theory out there that I find really fascinating and this is from Ryan Goodman and Andrew Weissman in The Atlantic, which I think as of yesterday was the most read article in The Atlantic. And essentially what they were saying is that this taped recording uh, of Trump talking about classified records that he had taken from Mar-a-Lago, one of them... Uh, is actually at Bedminster, apparently. And this these charges were filed in Miami, but what the Atlantic article points out is that he wasn't charged with dissemination, which is a separate part of the statute. So uh, that, according to these Atlantic art- writers, could mean that Jack Smith is holding a few cards and a few charges, and it could be Presidential Records Act, it could be espionage, it could be more obstruction charges, that he could file in New Jersey with a different jury pool and a different judge if he feels like Aileen Cannon is uh, slowing this down or in any way acting improper. So, and, and this is like a common tactic of federal prosecutors is holding mm-hmm. back certain charges as leverage. And so... I find that quite persuasive because it is notable that they did not include the dissemination charges. And if you're thinking about it from uh, Jack Smith's perspective, they had a a grand jury convened in in D.C. and they had a grand jury convened in Miami. They decided Miami because they didn't want any motions to dismiss this based on venue. Mm. And so, but they probably were sitting around being like, well, how do we protect against going back in front of this other judge that we've had problems with before? And it wouldn't surprise me if they were like, well, let's let's keep a, like whatever charges we can that have a nexus to other geographies. Let's try to keep some of them out so that we have the option later on. Mm. Yeah. As a Jersey girl, I can say that that probably wouldn't go as smoothly for him uh, back home. But it's interesting to see how the Republicans have been responding to this. Um, my buddy Vivek was really out there and already um, promising that he will pardon him if the time comes and he's president. America is not a country. 
where the party in power is able to use police force to arrest its political opponents. That is the stuff of banana republics. We don't do that in this country. I read the indictment by the Federal Department of Justice against Donald Trump. That document reeks of politicization. I will tell you why. It stays silent on the main law that's relevant to this case, the Presidential Records Act. It stays silent on the 2012 case that says that the president has an authority to decide what is and is not covered. It stays silent on the statements that Trump made in 2016 after the election, despite the fact that it quotes him before that election. So a few things here, because I was kind to Vivek Ramaswamy the last time we talked about him. This is good politics, but it's, I would say it is, it is very flawed logic to be, to try to be charitable here. Like number one is like, at what point, like to what end do we bring, do we apply this logic to like, if Donald Trump murdered somebody, could the Biden's justice department like not do anything there? So I think like you have to say, and, and I was critical of the brag stuff cause I felt like it didn't rise to the level. There wasn't enough of a history uh, of those particular charges being applied to anybody. So I didn't feel like it was appropriate given the political nature of, of it all to charge Trump there. This is different. This is the most sensitive national security information we have, our vulnerabilities, the vulnerabilities of our allies, plans to attack other countries. And you have somebody who was repeatedly given the opportunity to hand that stuff back who didn't and then was sharing it with random people. So to me, that is, and and, and he says, well, the they're silent on the declassification authority of Trump. He, no, it's not. The indictment document explicitly quotes Trump himself saying he didn't declassify these documents. So Trump himself gave away that defense. And then there's this, this move to be like focusing on the Presidential Records Act and be like, that's the statute issue. Well, that's the statute issue if you want it to be the statute issue, but the Espionage Act is one of the most important laws we have in this country. It's a, it's a law that protects us against people disseminating information that damages the national security of the United States. And people could argue about whether Snowden or this person or that person, and you and I have, about whether like it was appropriately applied to them. This is just a careless person who, for ego or Lord knows what, is sharing sensitive, very, very important national security information about this country after he'd been given multiple opportunities to give that stuff back. And I'm like, I, like even many people in his camp, like Barr, believe this, he's finally crossed a line and gone too far. If even half of it is true, then he's toast. It's a very detailed indictment, uh, and it's very, very damning. And this idea of presenting Trump as a victim here, a victim of a witch hunt, uh, is ridiculous. I think there are a couple things just to flag here. Uh, this is obviously going to be a really important inflection point in the presidential race. So Vivek, I think, did a smart thing politically, even though I, I think it is a dangerous argument, is that he got out really fast and said, I am going to support a pardon. This is my commitment on January 20th, 2025. If I'm elected the next U.S. president, pardon Donald J. Trump for these offenses in this federal case. And he called on his his opponents in the race to support a pardon. Some of them are very explicitly not going to, like Chris Christie, who came out pretty forcefully on that. Um, yeah. 
Pence was pretty critical, et cetera. Nikki Haley, you know, in classic Nikki Haley fashion, kind of was like on both sides of the issue. So well, it's, I think anyone should be at this point in time, just because like, just wait until there's a response from Trump's team. I mean, there's no reason to just hop already on top of the indictment one way or another if you're in a Republican primary, unless you're literally just concerned with hopping over Trump in the polls. Yeah, well, I mean, it, but it goes both ways, right? Like, like if if one is like, hey, like, you know, everybody's entitled to defense, let's hear what Trump says, yada, 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 then Vivek should also slow down if that's your theory, right? Oh, so yeah, like, yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. I, th- yeah, that is my theory. This is a really crazy situation, Ricky, because the two most likely scenarios for Trump right now are either to be the next president of the United States or spend a lot of time in a federal prison. And that is like a wild, wild series of options ahead of him. This is, I would say this is an important race for him, maybe the most important uh, race of the three that he's ever had. I think it would be so fitting for our political system if we had a presidential race with one candidate in prison and one candidate in the basement being puppeted <laughs> around. What a place that we've arrived at. <laughs> I knew there was a Biden <laughs> shot there somewhere. All right, I'm going to let that one go. I've been from good Biden behavior. Ricky, helicopter parents. Mm. You've written a lot about this. We've talked about it. There's this great article by Taiping Chen in the Wall Street Journal all about how the helicopter parent generation is now invading the workplace. Yeah. So I'll quote uh, from this article, and I want to hear your thoughts on this. Anxious parents have shepherded their kids through high school, college, and the pandemic. Now they're entering the workplace. Recruiters and hiring managers say they are seeing an uptick in parents inserting themselves into their children's professional lives, calling up hiring managers, applying for jobs on their behalf, and even showing up on the job to help mediate conflicts. (laughs) This is scary. Yeah, it's just so not surprising to me, um, considering that we like factory farmed children to become college applicants by the time they were like 12. And I mean, this is just the the continuation of the same sort of micromanaging from Gen Z's parents and also the dependence that we all like it's it goes both ways because I think we've become pretty dependent on having that that management and not being not deferring to anyone, but our parents and just going along with it. But yeah, some of these anecdotes that she had were pretty extreme of like parents coming in for interviews and walking through the door first. So they don't even know who they're interviewing for a job or um, sitting in on them on interviews, uh, applying for jobs on their behalf, which is just shocking to me. Um, Man, but- I wish my mom, my mom like worked two jobs. She couldn't even take me to sports practice. She, in my entire life, and my mom's going to smack me for this. I don't remember her ever going to a parent teacher conference ever. So yeah. it's like, and that's not because she's a bad mom. She's just working all the time. Yeah. And you know, it's like, I just very, can't even imagine this. My mom is very involved, but you know, she's not going to show up at work. And she also, Oh was, wait, hold on. Uh, like you say, she's not going to show up at work. Now I, your mom and I, <laughs> did she your, say otherwise? <laughs> your mom and I had our weekly one-on-one this morning. Uh-huh. Uh, and she, Poor you know, we were talking about just like how best to give you feedback, Ricky. And this is what she had to say. Tell me more about this. Like, so how do you deliver feedback to Ricky? Like if you want her to do something differently? Yeah. Um, well, just recently we, we had a situation um, and I was a little frustrated um, with the way she had handled something. And we were on the phone and I thought about it and I called her and I, I learned through some 
counseling method that I'd read about that the best way to elicit a response from somebody that you love is to tell them like you love them. And mm. so I um, pointed something out um, that she did that actually hurt my feelings to where it made me mad. And I just realized, though, I'm not mad, I'm sad. Um, mm. And I approached her and I told her, like, I loved her. And she instantaneously, it was magical. So I think you're, if I'm hearing you correctly, your advice is I should tell Ricky I love her, which should create maybe some HR issues <laughs> for me. Uh, <laughs> But maybe I'll tone it down a little bit and be like, I respect you and I respect you. Therefore, yada, yada. So good advice for your mom. I look forward we to next week. We had a situation. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, kind of don't, don't need to know. Don't need um, to know. No, but, I don't, but it, it can be helpful. Dramatic. Like That was helpful, Ricky. And, and your mom and I have okay. agreed to make this a standing meeting. I only will take feedback if it's couched in an ample praise and implications of great affection. That is the new rule. <laughs> and I think that's how I'll, I, I'll tell my New York Post bosses that too. All you need a compliment years, sandwich? We need, yeah. We, no, I mean, in fact, we need like a declaration of, of all of your great feelings about us first before you tell us even the slightest feedback. Apparently, that's, that's, that's my vibe. That's what your mom is saying. Yeah, yeah, evidently. I mean, but she's, thankfully, she's not, you know, this is not the way that I thought this interview would go with her. Because to me, the place where, I'm guilty of having the helicopter parent thing, but it's because I elicit it. It's not her fault. It's because yeah. like, I, I will call my mom all the time for career advice and stuff. Cause you know, sometimes I get an op-ed assignment. I'm like, you know, I'm about to write something for a big ass newspaper and put my name on it. So I'm going to, you know, bounce it off of someone. And so I just came from Fox right before we did this show. And I called her on the elevator up and told her my talking points. And she was like, yeah, good. So I'm guilty of it. I call my mom from work. So I'm, I can't be the anti-Zoomer Zoomer on this one. Yeah. It took me a second to get that from her because she was saying all nice things about you. And I was like, I was actually about to to hang up the Zoom call and, and there, there was not like a ton that fit perfectly within this segment. And then oh, she God. was like, by the way, and I was like, yes, <laughs> <laughs> it was exactly what we needed. Thank you, Kim. There's this article by Ginevra Davis in Tablet about body positivity. I thought this was such a sex smart Sex positivity article. more. Or sex positivity, sorry. Yeah, you're right. Uh, and it, although it's probably linked to body positivity, but essentially mm -hmm. what she's saying is there's this weird combination of trends. You have Gen Z, who are more sex positive than ever, which I, I think she defines as essentially like more comfortable talking about sex, um, sharing needs, wants, desires, yeah. et cetera, being comfortable with previously more like, you know, experimental and like, you know, different types of sexual relationships, but at the same time are having less sex. And mm -hmm. she just has all sorts of theories about why this might be the case. Yeah, she opened with like a funny anecdote from being at Stanford and one of their orientations being like a sexual TEDx conference and like, people talking about their very graphic endeavors into different sexual realms, like no big deal, um, which is just exactly what I experienced in my generation. Like being in an NYU dorm and stuff, it wouldn't be uncommon to walk into someone's room and they just have their, their sex toys out. And it's like, I don't know. So I, f I feel like it's it's funny to 
like my mom will always say when sex in the city first came out, it was kind of shocking about how brash they would talk about like sexual things on the show and that that would raise eyebrows. And to me, that's just like every day. I mean, not in, in my personal life, but certainly generationally. And I feel like it got to the point where it's like, we're, we're oozing this like extremely intimate graphic detail to such a degree that it's no longer intimate. And I, I kind of agree with the thesis of this uh, article that there might be kind of like a, a counter revolutionary trad sort of situation and backlash to this. Well, this is what she has to say about it. She says, um, human sexuality was historically repressed and can finally be expressed. In reality, though, sex is now so acceptable that it's boring. Social propriety watchdogs often try to argue that sex positivity is inappropriate, but they are wrong. It is distinctly almost painfully appropriate to the extent that every generation until ours thought that they invented sex it is because they had a chance to discover it privately away from the authority figures. Yeah. We have to discover it with them which is gross. It's so gross. <laughs> and it starts when you're so young, Can you so tell me more, too. like, about what do you mean with them? Like, I, I think I'm having a hard time like, understanding what that like means. I remember in high school, like, sex ed stuff being such an overshare, sort mm -hmm. of. Like, oh, I, I don't really need sex ed on, like, masturbation and, and like, and pleasuring yourself and doing your thing. Like, that's just my own business. Like, tell me about, like, birth control not right. I don't know like it there's definitely a very in your face aspect of it um and to the point where I feel like it's things that used to be shocking or exciting or enticing are no longer uh, mm -hmm. for a lot of people and you know I've, I've also written about like I guess this is tangential but like kind of related um this issue of of erectile dysfunction or functional erectile dysfunction just not but not like a physical issue mm -hmm. with young men who when they watch porn, they can get aroused. But when they see a woman in real life, they have like, they, they can't get it up because they've conditioned their body to get so like responsive to such extreme levels of, of nudity or of like hardcore porn that they get to a point where normal sexual interactions that are age appropriate and are what girls consent to are not interesting to them or don't, activate their minds in the same way. And I think that this is kind of analogous. Like I, I spoke to a, a, a friend of mine who had that problem and he said like before he was watching porn and before he was inundated with this sex positivity in his life that he, you know, a, a girl's bra strap would drive him crazy for a whole day if he'd seen mm -hmm. that. And then it, yep. you know, and within a couple of years he's watching hardcore porn and that's, you know, his, his sexual reality. So I think that there's some truth to the fact that this is ruining actually the, the good old fashioned stuff for young people. Yeah. I can't tell Ricky whether like these are two trends that just happen to be living side by side and are unrelated, like in the sense that we have the pandemic, we have the digital age and the fact that, that people uh, we've, as we've covered before, you have porn and you have all these things that make it and I'll put porn aside because I actually think porn might fit within her theory. But you have all these other things that are like, that have to do with just people not socializing properly and yeah. making it harder to seal the deal, quote unquote, right? Like you can have all these ideas or whatever, you could text whatever, but like in the end, you have, it's a human to human experience and your generation has less of that experience uh, than any generation before. Mm -hmm. And you talk about rejection, like in your column, et cetera, like like are probably paralyzed by some of these social uh, interactions. So part of me yeah. wonders like well, whether that's doing most of the work here and not like all of this sort of 
like her theory though is interesting, but I'm like, mm, is what's the more powerful force? What I just described or people being like, eh, like I've now been told all this stuff about sex, so it's no longer a mystery. I'm not quite convinced on that because, you know, like people's sexuality is such a powerful driving force, like in their yeah. desires, right? I, I have a hard time believing that just because authority figures are leaning into it and things are becoming more transparent that people are all of a sudden like, ah, meh, I won't try. Yeah, I wouldn't say that that's the the largest animating thing. Like, I agree with you that there are other more technologically driven factors, but I do think that there's kind of like a general malaise around this in-your-face ickiness. And I do see there's like, especially younger members of my generation, like a few years younger than me, that are just turning towards more conservative sexual practices or comporting themselves in a more conservative way just because I feel like we have moved to such an extreme. And, you know, I'm probably in some New York liberal bubble, but like, you know, I, I think we have moved to such an extreme of oversaturation that it's more interesting to be the countercultural person who's not like just talking about their masturbation habits at coffee, like no mm -hmm. big deal. I mean, yep. truly, when I think back about the things at NYU, I hope none of my friends are listening to this right now. But like, I remember one time we were sitting around in the dorm and everyone was taking this like, what is your kink fetish quiz or something together and going through the questions. And I remember just sitting there and I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> you know what's but, fascinating is like what you're describing, like, and there's different language that men would use for this, but like, what you're describing is kind of how guys used to talk to each other, I think, more than they do now. Uh, whereas like I think, talking about... But like, they, they'd be way more inappropriate and all that. But like, I think that like the so-called locker room talk or whatever, right? Whereas I think guys in general have become more private from what I understand in terms of just like how they talk about sex. And women have become way more open with each other about it. Which I, I guess yeah. is a good trend, like uh, maybe. I feel like but, we just need to figure out, like I, everything, all our pendulums are swinging every which direction and nothing makes right. sense anymore. And I feel like it's all like a course correction because I don't need to like be inundated with this aggressive sex positivity all the time. I think like you can be sex positive and also very private. Like that's not mm -hmm. a, a mutually exclusive thing. And I think that that's what she's trying to get at here. And I also think that's what some younger people are, are realizing for themselves as well. So I don't know. I think yeah. this is like another one of those cultural issues where we've tried to correct for the fact that perhaps we were very Victorian in the past. We've moved to the point where for some reason we're taking kink quizzes and exchanging vibrator tips in mm -hmm. like, <laughs> in the classroom basically at NYU and now we have to figure out like what what does some degree of in between look like and i think that i think there's going to be so many weird countercultural backlash like neo trad things happening with like younger gen z and gen alpha like i think they're going to be culturally super bizarre and all over the place because they're going to be observing different weird little social experiments that we've all been living through and responding to them in like completely different ways. So that's my prediction that we're going to have like a wild array of bizarre little crevices of like TikTok or whatever the next version is that are like representing the backlash to some of these trends. Yeah. She, she says something 
that that made me laugh. I mean, she was a really good writer. I, I've never read anything from her before, but she said, she said today, sex positivity has successfully rebranded sex as just another facet of self maintenance, like brushing your teeth or choosing the right moisturizer. But what sex positivity denies is that many of the behaviors it seeks to destigmatize never stop to be normal in the first place. Bondage was explicitly designed to subvert. Instead, it has been cleaned up and rebranded as yet another equally valid sexual option, commodified in kink contracts and commercialized on Netflix shows like How to Build a Sex. Room. Is that a real Netflix show? I'd never yeah. heard that. Before. Wow. So there's like also some like really, really weird um gosh, I can't remember the specifics of it, but there is like a really bizarre, like something about like vaginas uh show on Netflix that I just could not even believe they were airing and like I don't know. I don't want to, I mean, you know, live and let live. I guess there's but an audience the thing is, for I it. I really but... celebrate more because there's there so many generations have been repressed, right? I forget the name of this book, but there's this book that somebody wrote about back when they Google used to release way more data about their trends, just yeah. about how many things people were Googling in different parts of the country where things are either taboo or against the law or whatever. Doesn't that and, make, but when things are at least a little bit taboo, isn't that a little more exciting than like, I don't want to see, like you go out in New York and you see like, Every body part just out and about. I have full confidence that homo sapiens will find new ways to find, make things taboo. Uh, And I think it will go the other way. That's why, that's why we have this like unprecedented spike in young people looking at like hardcore, aggressive, violent pornography. And also girls too, who, if you look at the statistics of the percentage of like college female students who say that they want to be choked during sex and have like violent fantasies, that's, skyrocketing. And I don't think that that's a good thing for society either, because we're looking for something taboo and we're landing in this like really regressive sort of aggressive sexual response. I don't know. I I don't know if that's a good market correction in my opinion, but I think there are two things going on there that hopefully will like resolve themselves over time. One is whenever you open up a, like, you know, sort of you open society up and become more permissive, there's always going to be some excess, right? And hopefully what you're describing is part of that. And the other part of it is there are people who genuinely, regardless of any of like the stimuli or messages they're getting, want certain things that other people might think are crazy. And as long as there's consent and strong communication, those people are entitled to do that. And I think- Yeah, I just don't want to hear about it. Yeah, you know what I hear. Some people <laughs> no. do. I, I would mention a generational thing here because this is my job as the old man here. That I would say older millennials like me and Gen Xers, our experience was dominated by the HIV/AIDS epidemic. Yeah, and I think like it was. It's so hard to describe how much different the general climate around sex is today than it was when we were kids and teenagers, where there was just people were very afraid. Uh, and there was like, a, I think a much more vibrant discussion of uh, safe sex than there is today. And it was because of the lack of like the digital environment, no apps, no digital mm-hmm. porn, um, you know, meeting people in person and all that. The your first few sexual experiences, though they could be awkward, there could be all sorts of things wrapped up in them, are so memorable and meaningful, even as like seemingly PG compared to what kids are going through now. That I do think kids are being robbed of something important. Like I know that's like a back in my day, like yada yada type of thing, but I do think that there was something beautiful about the way that things were sort of like 
things were a little slow, you know, mm-hmm. like it took, a, it took a bit, even though like in Staten Island, like we were, like where, when I grew up, it, we were as sexually active teenagers as anybody I've met as an adult. But even that compared to like the options available to kids today, even if they're not yeah. taking them is like, I, I don't know what we would have done if we had apps and digital porn and all that. We would have been, it would have been a totally different experience and probably not for the better. And it wasn't, it's not even about what you do necessarily too. Like if you look at the statistics, I don't have them off the top of my head, but it's like the vast majority of, of tweens don't even mean to come across stuff on the internet, but do. And like that happened to me all the time. And I didn't, had no idea what I was looking at and was often frightened by it when I was like, nine and trying to be on club penguin but you know what the like hell is club penguin oh my god you're so old what i don't I'm know tell you is. what club penguin is okay well okay i'll say one thing just to give you, you really a sense of out. why this is like important is like a typical day you're 15 years old in staten island new york in 1997 or something right your mm-hmm. buddies come over and they're like, hey, one of your friends met this girl at the mall who lives in another neighborhood. And the whole day is about going to that neighborhood to hang out with that other group of friends. You meet those friends. Maybe you meet their friends. And you discover a whole new experience and all that. Today, you're sitting around. You're looking at apps. You're doing whatever. If you're even sitting around with other people, maybe you're in video games or whatever. Talking, It's like the difference in the quality and the depth of those two experiences cannot be understated. Like, yeah. I would pick, I know it's like an old man thing, but I would pick the former any day. And there are a lot of things that were worse back then, but but this is not one of them. Like, those are some of those yeah. meaningful rites of passage as kids, that sense of adventure, that sense of going out there, the sense that you're all in it together, the, things, the sense that things move slow and that you have to wait for it, you have to communicate well, you have to rely on in-person experiences. I mean, this is definitely a back in my day, get off my lawn thing, but I do think it, it was better. I'm usually the back in my day, even though I don't even have a day to go back to. So I'm glad that we're both on the same page here. Sound like a bunch of boomers. Hey, this is Ricky. You've reached the last debate. If you have some feedback for us, leave it after the town. We have one voicemail on greedflation. Hi, um, just wanted to kind of correct a little something you guys were talking about on the uh, weekend episode. Uh, it, it talks, you guys are talking about um, CEOs and the board and everything. And, and I just wanted to reiterate that the stockholders are the American people, right? So everybody's 401ks, all of our money is invested in these corporations. Um, and I hate to be that guy that's defending corporations here, but you know, this is just kind of something that's natural, a part of our economic system. Uh, corporations are required to grow due to the investment demand returns that we put upon them too, right? So boards can't accept a non-growth quarter if they have the opportunity. And the government can't exacerbate that problem because we know what our format of economics is. And if we're putting money into this system where the corporations are going to be demanded to take advantage of that system, Right. We are exacerbating that problem as the American people, as the voters, um, because, you know, all of our retirements are tied up into the system. So I just wanted to put that out there. All right. Thank you. Very valid points. And I think the problem, though, I think a lot of us have in terms of the people is like it's so far removed sometimes on both accounts, both in terms of the people's relationship with the Fed, but also the people's relationship with these corporations via their pension funds or their investments, et cetera. So I think often people have a hard time 
understanding what their connection to these institutions actually can mean in terms of influence. And that's why I think things could be frustrating. Like pick the Fed, for example. Like most people, although their lives are very, very much influenced by Fed's decisions, especially if you're trying to buy a house, mm-hmm. people couldn't tell you the first thing about like how Jerome Powell operates and what decisions he makes, how he's appointed, how long his term is, what the Fed's role versus the Treasury's role versus Congress versus the Commerce Department versus the White House Economic Advisor, et cetera. So they have just very limited influence over those things or even understanding about how their influence matters. And I think the same could be said of corporations where, yeah, like you have your pension funds, et cetera, but like most people couldn't name who's the administrator of the pension fund in their state or, you know, we couldn't tell you a whole lot about like how their 401k operates or showing up to these you know board meetings, even if they're allowed to show up to stockholder meetings, et cetera. So it's like, that's, that's what I think people get frustrated, but you're right. I mean, like there, there is some agency here. I just, sometimes I wonder whether that the agency is tangible enough for people to to seize it. Well, if you have any other feedback for us or any questions or segment ideas or whatever you may have, give us a ring 321-200-0570 and be sure to rate, review and subscribe. Um, Tell us why you love the show. Give us five stars if you have the time. And thanks for listening. We will be back. Is this Thursday? We'll be back on Tuesday. The Lost Debate is a part of the Branch Network. The show is produced by Mickey Ayub, research support by Ariane Misra, video editing by Julia Waldman, and editing and sound design by Dean Metherell. Mm-hmm.